This reminds me of the sarcasm that Job used with his friends. He said over in Job 12, verse 1, after this, uh, Job answered and said, No doubt, no doubt, but you are the people and wisdom shall die with you. <clears throat> Job was vexed with his friends because they were wrongly accusing him when he knew in his heart that he loved God and had not deliberately done any wrongdoing. In the 12th Psalm, David <clears throat> seems to feel the foundations of state crumbling, and yet he did not join a multitude to do evil, to overthrow the God-established government. Indeed, presented with the opportunity <clears throat> of putting an end to the evil reign of Saul, he would not do it. And it was not because of cowardice. One could not accuse David of cowardice. He referred to Saul as the Lord's anointed. The prophet Samuel had anointed Saul as well as David. And so long as God was willing for Saul to remain on the throne, that was all right with David. Regardless of the personal inconvenience and hardships that it entailed. <clears throat> Verse 2, he describes the doings of those in power. They speak vanity. Everyone with his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart do they speak. <clears throat> Useless. Vanity means vain, useless to the hearer, not to be relied on. And flattery is two-faced or double-hearted. You remember the flattery that the Herodians heaped upon the Lord Jesus. When they came out with their question that they thought was unanswerable, they said in Matthew 22, verse 16, 
the Pharisees sent out to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, teacher, we know that thou art true. We know that thou art true. And teach us the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Now, was that what they thought? <laughs> no. They thought they had him. But uh, the Lord Jesus was not taken in by their flattery. He said, why tempt ye me, you hypocrites? There are some things that God hates. Now, in our day, we have portrayed God as a helpless old man that uh, wrings his hand and hopes somebody will do something to make things work out right. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is on his throne and he's got everything under control and at his appointed time he will cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things. The things he hates are listed in Proverbs 6.16. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift and run, running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. <clears throat> and he will bring those things to an end. These vain speakers, Jude calls them raging waves. Jude 13. Raging waves of the sea foaming out their own shame. It's strange. The easy yoke of our Lord is galling to the shoulders of the proud. The easy yoke of our Lord is galling to the proud. And yet, they, bi they bind the iron yoke of Satan on themselves very proudly and boast of it. and do not see any inconsistency in that. Their independence is uh, striking. Who have said, with our tongue will we prevail? 
Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? These are very modern speakers. Our Lord describes such in Luke 19, verse 12. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. But the rest of the story is recorded in verse 27, But those mine enemies which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. <clears throat> In verse 5, we have the Lord aroused, and in due season he will relieve his elect, though he bear long with them. The sighing heart of the oppressed, he knows. The oppression of the poor, the sighing of the needy. We have referred before to the children of Israel under the Pharaoh that knew not Joseph. Exodus 2, verse 23, it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage. And they cried, and their cry came up to God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. Now they were poor and needy, not powerful, but they had a powerful champion. Now the oppression of his own, he does not countenance. Isaiah 63, 9, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. That's a strange statement. Does God suffer? Amid the pleasures of heaven, He feels for his oppressed people. And so we see the Lord Jesus standing when Stephen was stoned. Ordinarily, ordinarily we read that he's seated at the right hand of the Father on high. But on that one occasion, Stephen said, I see Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. Verse 5 has a wonderful promise for us to lay hold on when we are in distress. Now will I arise, saith the Lord, I will put him in safety from him that puffeth in him. 
Nothing moves a father like the cry of his children. He bestirs himself. He wakes up his manhood. He overthrows the enemy. He sets his beloved one in safety. A puff is too much for the child to bear. And the foe so haughty that he laughs the little one to scorn. But the father comes, and then it is the child's turn to laugh when he has been set in safety. In verses 6 and 7, the words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in the furnace of earth purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Now the figure here is refers to the process of refining silver. All dross is removed so that there is absolute purity. So God's words are pure. They have certainty Holiness, faithfulness. The Bible <clears throat> has passed through the furnace of persecution, of literary criticism, of philosophic doubt, and of scientific discovery. And it has not lost anything from any of those. The words of the Lord are pure words. And then there's the wonderful promise, Thou wilt keep them, O Lord, Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. And the generation the contemporary generation is the one that the saint needs preserving from. In David's day, it was the Doeg, and it was the Saul, and it was the other non-fearers of God that he needed preservation from. God's words are true, and when he said, I will arise, I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. Those words are true altogether. The words of his children ought to be such words. They ought to be truthful. Paul wrote to the Ephesian Christians in Ephesians 4.25, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor for we are members one of another. In uh, verse 7, there is no contingency here. There is no doubt. Thou shalt. A sure foundation upon which hope is built. You remember Peter said in Second Peter 2, 9, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation 
and to reserve the wicked unto the day of judgment. He knows how. And he can, and he will. So <clears throat> this ought to be very reassuring. Whenever we face vexing situations, we have one on high who sees, who knows all about it. And in his good time, he will change it. The uncertainty is how we will behave in our difficult situation. That's where we need to be careful. In the last verse of the psalm, the, he, refer, he goes back to the first verse, talks about the wicked walking on every side when the vilest men are exalted. Now when vile men rule, those are bad times. I don't have to, uh, I don't have to call any names, do I? But uh, in the uh, Proverbs, a number of passages refer to the prevalence of wickedness and the effect that it has upon the populace. Proverbs 11, verse 10, When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, they're shouting, By the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. In the 29th chapter of Proverbs, <coughs> verse 2, when the righteous are in authority, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. Now this calls for, this calls to mind some events that happened in the palace, in Shushan the palace, in the days of Ahasuerus, the uh, husband of Esther. In Esther 3.15, Haman, the Agagite, had been exalted above all of the other princes, and he had gone into the king and had procured a decree that all Jews would be slaughtered. And then he and the king sat down to feast. But we're told, uh, yes, Esther 3, verse 15, the post went out, being hastened by the king's commandment. The decree was given in Shushan the palace. The king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city Shushan was perplexed. Well, God caused all of this to change, and Haman, the Jew, Haman was hanged on a gallus that he had built for Mordecai, and Mordecai was made the prime minister of the land, and the situation was altered. And in Esther 
Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold with a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. So when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. You might remember that at the request of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were advanced in the affairs of the provinces of Babylon. They were made rulers over certain provinces. And uh, it was good for those provinces that these just and righteous men were placed in positions of authority. That is, they were just and equitable. They got into trouble because of their rule that they could not bow down before images. One final point here. We ought to rejoice when God gives us just and moral leaders. We ought to mourn when we are given lying, cheating, and unrighteous leaders.